Welcome to the Luxury Book Club, where tonight we're going to be talking about London Overground, a 2015 book by Ian Sinclair, and the film made with John Rogers from this year. So Ian Sinclair is a writer and filmmaker whose previous works include Down River, Lights Out for the Territory, Hackney, That Rose Red Empire, and London Orbital. And John Rogers is a writer and filmmaker whose previous works include This Other London, Adventures in the Overlook City, Make Your Own Damned Art, The World of Bob and Roberta Smith, and a London perambulator. But tonight we're here to talk about London Overground, Ian's book from last year, and the film we've just watched from earlier this year, I believe. Yeah, we filmed it. We started uh, summer 2015 and we finished it. Have we, have we finished it? I was say, yeah. <laughs> we, we completed this cut uh, not long ago, July. The good experience about the whole thing with the film for me was that we were never particularly aware of making a film. Um, it's, it started out really because John came along to the London Review of Books shop where uh, an event was going on uh, reading and a sort of promotion for the, the book as a literary artifact and, and John did, a, did an interview there and uh, again we decided to meet by Hoxton station and had a conversation on a bench and um, the magnetic field of this railway was such that I felt we shouldn't stop. So I said to John, you know, you're a real um, guerrilla filmmaker, why don't we just keep going and um, do it again and go, go around? And I think he was uh, a bit shocked by the idea, but, but um, fell in with it very nicely and it became something to do for the next few months. Well, it was one of those offers that you can't say no to. Where I mean, Ian's, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but Ian's probably my favourite living writer. I shouldn't say probably, Ian's my favourite living writer. Uh, Andrew is the reason I picked up a camera and started making films instead of trying to write them. So I was like, you want to do the war? It's like, yes. And then the next thought was, how the hell am I going to film a 35 mile walk in one day? So I started like working out how many batteries that would be and how many memory cards and things like that, and whether my left knee would, you know, how far I'd get. So it's got about a 12 mile limit. So that was the thing, but it, what, what obviously Ian said, no, don't be stupid, we'll do it in sections over the course of a year. So we did it in kind of uh, like five, six mile sections in the end, throughout across the seasons, which I think works quite nicely. The difficulty was that, that John is nocturnal. I mean, he kind of likes to work at night, catch a few hours sleep, take the kids to school, and that, that's programs of the day, getting the kids to school, collecting the kids from school. I'm, I'm really a very early morning person. I kind of get up early, do walk, start working while my brain is fresh, and then wander off in the afternoon in a, in a sort of low-key way. So that when my general wanderings would take place would be just at the very point that John was having to break off to collect the kids from school. So the whole thing became the series of um, grabs at time um, and also the arrangements to get the other people along. And um, it, isn't, it isn't the experience of writing a book, but it is in some ways a kind of a, a, a different and a richer experience of London because uh, you're able to actually listen to what 
Bill Parry Davis has to say about Dalston and witness him rather than take on board some literary description that's always finessing a character, inventing a character, because the books are like novels. I've just been over in Paris and Liège promoting French versions of this, and what I really like there about it is that they describe them as romans. I mean, as far as the French are concerned, these are novels. These are, these are kind of fictions of the city, which is how I like to think of it. I really hate that term, non-fiction. I mean, it's so negative. Is that the best you can do with it? It's not fiction. Well, what is it? You know, the, the best things are, are, they're neither of these categories or any of the, they're not travel books. They're not fictions. They're not histories. They just are experiences of living and being in a city. And, and John's work, both as a writer and as a filmmaker, is really absolutely about that. I mean, I think he's um, such a, an activist as well as being a person who's lodged in a particular part of London geography, that kind of Leytonstone territory, which is very fascinating in its own way, and abuts onto the Olympic zones and into the stuff that you're looking into, I think, you know, uh, stone, not stone circles, but earthworks, and traces of an earlier London out on the fringes of things. So that connected up. Ian, you go a bit in the film when Ian and Andrew are talking about uh, Ian Dyke being unable to stop and all the rest of it. But they're always cooking something up. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of you in here kind of plan things and scheme them and go, oh, yeah, I'll do this one day. We'll walk from Waltham Abbey to, you know, Hastings. But you don't do it in reality because it's a long way and you've got a life to live. But Ian and Andrew cook up these things like riding a swan pedalo from St. Leonard's to Stratford, and then they do it. And I remember them talking about it at, uh, at an event like this at the BFI in 2006, I think, you first mentioned it. I'd see you at events, and I'd say, see Andrew at things from time to go, oh, are you going to do that thing? They went, yeah, we're going to do it. We've done, we've walked it. And then they did it and made a film. I mean, they just made a film, made an amazing film, did a book work and all sorts of things. And this was one, and I, a lot of time I'm over, I'm eavesdropping on a lot of this through the, you know, through the headphones. One of the things they were talking about is, is this journey, and, and I think at one point you had this, you were discussing about carrying this stone effigy of Edith cradling King Harold. And I thought, I remember thinking, because I'm getting fragments, there's a little bit of cut-up going in there, I thought, how is that going to work? And then they went, a year around next Friday, we're going to walk from Abbey to Hastings, do you want to come? <laughs> And again, I went, well, oh, I can meet you there after I drop my kids off, but I've got to be back in Leytonstone at 3.15. So I did the first bit, and I went, Andrew went, yeah, do you want to film it? I'll take the footage and do something with it, but then you can use it in the film. And I thought, how's that fit into the overground? But it, it did. We, we, you know, we found a way of doing it. Do you want to talk a little bit about Edith? That's an amazing... Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what, what, what John says I think is very important. And, and with, with the projects with Andrew, as with Chris Pettit, who appeared in this film, because did, you did a lot of things with Chris, the difficulty was that we, we ran out of the steam of commissioning. I mean, um, Chris and I made four, four films in the 1990s, all of which were very important to me. And um, this was through Channel 4. You, they would give you a, a really fairly modest amount of money, but it was enough amount of money to, to work on something that was conceived and worked on like a book. And that, that petered out. That was, that was gone by the um, turn of the millennium. The, the London Orbital book I did was also a film with Chris. 
And with Andrew then, Andrew is phenomenally dynamic at taking meetings and uh, performing and getting money, but even that is, is getting very, very, very difficult. And the, the film we did about John Clare, the poet, going from the asylum in Epping Forest back to uh, his home village, we walked that with um, uh, Toby Jones, amazingly, playing, playing John Clare, and his father, Freddie, playing Claire as well and voicing him. Um, all that was done for nothing with Kickstarter. But I mean, all of that takes phenomenal time and energy. The thing with John is that he just, shall we do it on Friday? Uh, yes. And he, he's along with his camera, walking through London through the night, and he's actually managing to run alongside. I mean, it, it's sort of totally astonishing. And it means that there is this idea of a cinema uh, literary performance nexus as a, as a kind of community and the, 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 the kind of political arguments that were being made about development in Dalston combined with playing jazz combined with uh, listening to Cathy Unsworth who, who writes detective fiction and uh, Marcia Farquhar who's a performance artist and, and a writer all of, the, all, all of these different voices can be brought together and I think that's what really this film is even more than the book is just a kind of community um, that shows you that that uh, despite what's happening in London and I asked John I mean I, I asked the question moves around to its position in the film but I asked him very very early on this question that stays in the film I've, I've touched on all these negative aspects that London is a really challenged city it's a city in, in a a place where it's become this world city. It's become a site of um, global financing. Uh, we, we've withdrawn from Europe. All of those things are going on. What are the positives? You're, you're someone who's out there. You're, you're going to a lot of meetings. You're attending all kinds of activists and watching them. What's positive? And um, John doesn't give an answer, so maybe he'd give one now. <laughs> Um, I, it, what's funny, actually, not to jump ahead to what Ian's... I did answer this question at the, when we did Q&A at the Rio, and Ian actually came out with a very good answer to my answer, which is making me say everything. But um, my, I think one of the reasons Ian asked that question is, is like I said, it's an opportunity to just go out there with a the camera. It's one of those things you think, well, when you saw a number of issues and campaigns arising and you want to help... I'm being strong, I'm not You think, well, what can I... Do and you think, well, I'll go wandering around a bit and make some notes. I go in the forest and I go and stand there in an earthwork and ponder on the boat. That's not a lot of good when the folk you see 15 mums were trying to get themselves rehoused. I mean, they, they don't really want to. My kids call me the hippie wizard. I mean, that ain't a lot of good <laughs> to somebody who's been made homeless. I mean, what do I do? For ah, oh, I can turn up the camera and I can record something and share a moment and we can stick it on. YouTube and then we can link it to Facebook and there and there. So that became something that I became involved in. People would go, we need help in in West Hendon or we need help in, in Earl's Court or we need help in Sweets Way or wherever it is. And I go, I, I can turn up with a camera. In fact, actually, I'm going to do one next week in Hackney Wick, you know, save Hackney Wick. That's another one. Robin Hood Gardens, etc. That's another one I'm going to do soon. Uh, so I turn up and I think what came from that I, I felt, because I, I, these are mostly social housing campaigns, because that's where a lot of the pressure is, as, as you're all highly aware, is our local authorities are privatising their assets 
like there's no tomorrow, not to point the finger of blame, because I mean, they say, oh, the government can't, anyway, whatever. So social housing is the key point of pressure, and people are being purged from London by the thousands, and tens of thousands of people are being systematically moved out of London. This is working towards a positive, um, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, so, so, and I grew up in a council house, and it was, you know, I'm really grateful for that experience. You know, my parents are incredibly grateful for that as well at the time. What you've seen is a massive amount of that was a, you know, social housing was really looked down upon for a long, long time. It really quite ashamed to grow up in a council house, and even in London. When I lived in Hackney in the early 90s, they used to give away council flats, and they couldn't give them away. They'd have a surplus of council flats. They would just you turn up at a meeting somewhere on a Tuesday night, at first Tuesday of the month, and they'd give out rent books. And they still have them left at the end of the night. So I remember one, one person turned up, and they had a choice of like 30 flats. This is only 25 years ago. Um, and to see, because people saw it being lost and threatened and the injustice of that, the, the range of people turning up on council estates to defend these assets, which, you know, a lot of people very wealthy, very comfortably off, got a big house, they were going, no, this is wrong, we need to defend this. And I think that, finally, that recognition that we're a whole community, and I think that's one of the things that made London special, and people always said was special, wasn't it, the way that, I went back to actually the estate I used to live on recently in Barnsbury, and I used to live on the Barnsbury estate there, opposite, you've got houses worth three million quid. They'd be what I'd see across the street from my window, from the one bedroom flat. That's being lost now because those kind of places are now being privatised, those council flats are being privatised, everything's being turned into luxury flats. So the people from those big houses in Barnsbury are going, no, that's wrong. And I think, you know, Ian actually said that's the quality of the opposition then. That's, and it's true, it is, you are talking about the protest is better, more people are involved in it. But I think what it is, is a joining up of elements of, London, of the society in London maybe weren't necessarily rubbing along together in recognition of a common problem that we need to solve. And it's like trying to turn around an oil tanker in a way, because we've gone so far down that road. When you look at what's happened in Stratford, I mean, imagine if all that once, all that land that was bought with public money, imagine if that was used to solve London's housing crisis, to provide the houses for the people on the waiting list of the surrounding boroughs. I think you've got collectively about, you've got 20,000 in Newham, 20,000 in Wolfham Forest, I don't know how many in Hackney, probably the same, but 60 or 1,000 people. That's the kind of, that's the, how many homes they've in that area. None of them are being built for those people. But now they wouldn't be able to do that, I think, if a similar scheme would have to be. So that's kind of, the, that's the positive. It doesn't sound like a positive, does it, when I put it that way? But I think we're heading, I think 10, 15, 20 years in the future, I think we're heading to something better. I just quickly wanted to throw out and see if there's any questions from the audience. How uh, difficult was it for you to limit the political aspect of the film in that respect? Because obviously it, hit, it hits home a lot when you, when you see it in the film. I hear you talk about it now and personally knowing how involved you are. How difficult was it to, to limit that element within the film? Obviously there's a strand running through it anyway, um, but I imagine that must have been difficult for you. It, well, it wasn't it, I, there was a point where I thought about cutting in some of the protest footage or just campaign footage I filmed over the years, particularly as we did cross some of those areas, like the New Era estate in, in, in Hoxton, that's right near, you know, we, we passed through there. We also actually, um, the scene in Brompton Cemetery, I'm going down there next month to do a screening with the campaign I've worked with there. I'm actually going to screen the footage of Andrew as the straw bear in Brompton Cemetery. And it's funny because the developer there, Capco, 
who are purging Earl's Square. I don't know if you've seen you know, Earl's Square Exhibition Centre's gone. I don't know if you have any particular special memories of it, though, but it's no longer there. <laughs> um, that's all gone, and they're building luxury flats, most of which have been sold to overseas buyers as investments, etc. Um, I thought I could cut that in, but actually, one of the things that, when I read the book, one of the, the <coughs> things that I think is Ian's general, you know, don't use the word lightly, genius, with books, particularly if you go uh, downriver. Lights Out for the Territory, London Orbital, Edge of the Orison, and now this book is, in a very simple device of that walk, it tells that story of what is happening, which is very difficult to get hold of. I know we were working on this stuff together, wasn't it? And one of the big things were, you had a situation where the Focus C15 mums were sort of doing their thing in Stratford and, the Carpent- and occupying the Carpenter's estate, which is where they were, and then you had the new era residents going, oh, this is happening to us in a new era. And then you have people in West Hendon saying this. And you thought, well, actually, this is the same thing. This is actually, I mean, the, the specifics of it are different. But when you approach it from a political angle, you have to deal with the specifics of that situation. So the new era campaign, which was successful, was successful because of the specificity of, oh, let's put pressure on these people who have a public profile, and then that can be, and then Focus if 15 was a very different situation situation West Hendon was a bit so people had to campaign around in, in West Hendon for example it was around the plight actually of leaseholders actually you know people who bought their council flats on a council estate actually what they bought was a lease and the council went okay well we'll give you 50% of what it's worth take it or leave it uh, compulsory purchase we're going to give you this You'll, what you can do is you can use the 50% of what it's worth to buy a 50% shared ownership stake in the flats we're going to build on the same site. So you go from owning your flat to part owning it and having to pay rent on top, or you have to leave London. So that was a very clear, so those were very disparate things. I think the book provides the narrative that holds all those campaigns together. And I thought it, to then introduce people walking down the street, waving flat would be like, not very subtle, where I think the book tells the story brilliantly. Well, I think, I think more than anything else, that, that what I'm concerned with is that uh, the imagination is political. And I think you, 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 you can't deal in simple binary, yes, no, black, white. I mean, for example, there's this complex situation here that Andrew Cotting, as he, as he reports in the film, lived on the Pepys estate for 20 years. It was really important for him. Here he is in a council flat. He has um, a young daughter called Eden, who, who has Joubert's syndrome, which is very debilitating and with a life, low, very low life expectancy. But by the energy he's brought to his engagement with her, she's an astonishing figure in his film Gallivant, and she makes art with him to this day. And, and what he did at one point was he was one of the people who took Mrs. Thatcher's money and uh, basically sold the council flat in Pepys estate, you know, uh, much against really the, the instincts of his wife, who was a sort of good socialist, and, and was able, as a result of that, to get space to, to live in Hastings, where he, his work kind of thrived and grew because he had some breathing space. So, I mean, and it's not that he was kind of selling or he's going to sell anything for profit. But it, it, that, that moment, which we, we kind of regard as the loss of public housing, also did lead to a, um, a real film artist performer who's a, a very active in all kinds of community ways, getting the chance to do something. So it's never 
quite as simple as it sounds. And I think what, what I'm trying to look at is all of the contradictions in life. That, that we don't, the, the political um, focus is often very simplistic. It's also a lot to do with rhetoric, and it's also a lot to do with the corruption of language. You know, you can't see anything without now this secondary element that tells you how wonderful it is. A hole in the ground, improving the image of construction. Volca highways are digging up constantly, Hackney in conjunction with the considerate constructors. You know, these, these things hook together. And that kind of language is, is, a, is a defilement. And we've got to go back to the language of all of the poets and writers and people who've taken on the city, suffered the city, grown with the city. And that's what I wanted to to bring in a certain sense to the film. I mean, the film is a bit deranged in me, like one of those mad street people talking all the time. But in, in the bits you see, in the quieter passages, and the, the engagements with other people, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of dialogue, it's, it's comic, and then again, it, the, the political facts come and stamp in your face, and there they are. I mean, you can't n not see them as you move around this landscape. The big moment for me, which John uh, caught really beautifully, is when we were, we would, we'd actually just passed the place where Angela Carter lived, and I was, um, had been talking about just suddenly remembering coming to visit her house there, and how um, wonderfully generous she'd been to me, starting out to be a writer, and confirmed this sense of London as being um, a world and, and a world of difference that she lived down in South London and she spoke about crossing the river into Whitechapel and feeling terrified because it was a kind of different way of moving faces looked different the way people were a little bit faster a little bit streetier and, and she felt odd there and yet her own uh, uncorseted imagination let rip across Brixton and all of that landscape and so we, we just passed that house and talked about it when suddenly I came across this sort of almost Montmartre set of steps going up. I got very excited because it was something, an accident. It's the magic of London. That there, suddenly there it is. And there's this laminated notice that says it's all going to be pulled down. And I mean, that, that wasn't in any way set up. It was just completely, completely coincidental. And then um, immediately after that comes this old building that has survived, this sort of brown, gingery building right by one of the stations uh, that has a kind of a, a narrative charm because nobody's tried to do anything with it. And I think the, the, the magic of the film for me is those little moments that just do those kind of things. All the, all the moments where um, you know, I'm, I'm collaborating with um, Bill and he's, he's tootling away on, on his saxophone in, in his house, um, you know, having done the day job, having made those arguments, having had those fights, with councils and politicians and uh, meetings and all the rest of it, um, sometimes winning, sometimes losing, um, being aware of uh, arson attacks in Dalston Lane, something like 14 or 18 of the properties were burnt, you know, while, while these uh, negotiations going on, trying to get people out of houses. So, so that's a London. It's, it is political. It is imagination. And it's that kind of world of William Blake which uh, I see represented in that mural on the end of a, of a house or terrace that's probably about to disappear, fading away, of Adam and Eve in a, in a sort of pastoral setting that invokes what's always there behind. And the, the quiet spaces that we stumble into away from the railway when we find ourselves in some 
old churchyard or down on, on the river itself and none of those things w would happen without people being prepared to to take the time to to walk and to to talk and to move and um, the film is is a really lovely representation of that I always ask about sort of chance and design in your work you've sort of alluded to it there but the the origin of the project itself of course was something you stumbled on by chance you were doing an entirely different walk when this occurred to you would you like to talk a bit about that uh, yeah that's 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 really the fiction um, what happened in, in reality was that I, I, I'd uh, walked most of my time for a lot of years out, out in the Lower Lee Valley. That was, that was the place that was, uh, gave you space and gave you huge horizons and brought back the period to me when I used to paint the white lines on football pitches, 200 football pitches, and just be staggered by the scale of the sky and what was going on there. And so I always went out there, but then you know, in that era of enclosures and uh, the, the, the Death Star alive, arriving in Olympicopolis, as they call it, which is, I think, probably the ugliest word in the language, um, I had to go in another direction, and I just headed south instead, and then I realized I was walking alongside this railway, and I, I kept going, and I did a, three days of looking closely at what was on that railway and then, then it sort of I thought that's a book you know that's a, that's a very simple structure for a book because it's the Homeric Odyssey you'll come right round back to where you started and you'll have seen London but it should be in a day and if I do it with Andrew Cotting that would link up with our swan peddler voyage and so on so that was the real thing then then what happened and what John shows at the end of the film was an on, on going back to Hastings from London. Andrew has this appalling motorbike accident on the old Kent Road and, and goes into a kind of black hole for a number of days. And it's as if then the whole book should be his, his dream or reverie. Or, and at that stage, I then threw away my first two chapters of the book and shaped it that, that I'd set off to walk to Canterbury. But that was actually fictional. I just wanted a walk that was a Canterbury Pilgrim walk that took me to the spot where he was going to have the accident. So I just invented that device. I did do the walk, but I mean, it, was, it came at the end rather than at the beginning. And at the same time, the same day I set off to do that, I saw on the, on the road by London Fields this uh, pigeon that was being run over because just at that point the council had stopped a woman throwing out crumbs for the pigeons, which she was doing. And so the pigeon was scavenging a burger cart and got run over. And a crow started to eat the corpse of the pigeon and then got run over in his... So it was kind of mounding up. And I thought, this is the metaphor I want. I'd better start the book with that. And then we'll finish with Andrew Cotting. So as I said before, it is actually a kind of a, uh, a novel. But, I mean, everything is, is true. So it's a kind of, that's, that's the way the form works. I'm looking for a shape, but it's not quite as simplistic as it looks. And as, as a counterpoint to that, in terms of the design element, um, you've said in previous works how who you walk with inspires how you think about the space around you. And I, I wondered, obviously, you'd worked with Andrew recently. Was there also other reasons why you thought he'd be good to walk with for this project? Uh, yeah, I mean, a Andrew is phenomenally dynamic, as you saw, but he, he also brings a kind of level of absurdity and comedy. And uh, um, the straw bear element related to the, the John Clare walk, because I wanted to do a film about this John Clare walk for a very long time. 
I thought that really lent itself to a film. It's an extraordinary text by John Clare, the poet, called Journey Out of Essex. It's only about four pages long, but it, it, it depicts this seizure or fugue when he just leaves this asylum and goes off on this astonishing walk. But I, you know, I, I, I actually imagined it as a Werner Herzog film. It would be perfect, like Caspar Hauser. But that wasn't within my reach, so I sort of battered at Andrew Cotting. He, he, he didn't, you know, he, he, he didn't want to do it because he, he'd have to read John Clare. So um, <laughs> he then saw a photograph in the book I did of, of a straw bear. There's an amazing photograph from Whittlesea Museum of a, one of these original straw bears, like a huge mound of mud and sticks, holding a rope to the, the, the minder who's with him. And it's, um, it's a folk tradition that still goes on in January of the year. And Andrew then, seeing that photograph, said, if I can be the straw bear, that's it, we'll do it. So, fantastic. So, Toby Jones is John Clare, and Andrew Cotting is the straw bear, and off we go. And so, in a sense, I wanted that ghost presence to also turn up in this film. And that, so, that's kind of... While we're walking around in, in the book, I'm actually trying to persuade Andrew to do the film. And then, obviously, by the time we make this film, the, the bear is now a presence. He's been in the film, he's been on the road, and he turns up on the Old Kent Road where we were t talking about things the first time around. So it's kind of a circles within circles within circles, and all of these projects overlapping to each other. But more than anything else, Andrew gives you that Don Quixote, Sancho Panza, you know, a, a crazy person leading a walk and a, and a, a wonderful kind of clown-like figures with him, deflating the pretensions of the walk. And that was that was that made the shape of the book, and led into the the one we've just done, which is really a beautiful piece with that by Andrew called Edith, which in which. Uh, the swan ped pedlo was called Edith after Edith Swanneck, who was the mistress of King Harold, based on a statue in Hastings. Uh, and so now uh, the walk was done with a with an actual with a woman, uh, Claudia Barton, a singer, enacting the part of Edith, the mistress of King Harold, in a wedding dress, walking from Waltham Abbey to Hastings. Any other questions from the audience? Both in the book and in the film, there are references and there could hardly not be to London's having become this world city that's somehow no longer so obviously a part of England or the UK and I'm wondering and of course partly that's what makes London London you know brings a lot of you know it's internationalism of the city brings richness to the city in more ways than one I suppose but I wonder I, was, I want to ask um, to what extent do you do you welcome this about London? To what extent do you regret it? And to the extent that you regret it, if you do, um, what do you what would you want to see instead? Do you, would you want to see London more more English, more British, um, more just more local? Well, well, I have a very again a kind of complicated response to that. In that, I, I absolutely believe that the the more the more peoples, the more um, connections that there are within the city, the better the city is, and, and that the, the city basically, as I, we said at the beginning of the film, grows out of the river, and the, and the river makes London a world port early on, and all of the all of the wonderful myths and energies of, of this part of London in particular come in from the immigrant communities that come in and enrich London and make it more than itself, and that that's now become 
uh, extraordinary to the to the extent that that moving through the landscapes they've always moved in and lots of days i mean i hear every language in the globe and i think on that level this this can only only be good uh, the the level that i'm wary of it is if it becomes just a world um clearinghouse money laundering financial center in which that the, the 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 demands of the international money markets and the corporate entities overwhelm a sense of locality and, and then that i think is where we are losing that we are losing our sense of the local and the local was made up of all kinds of different races and communities who settled in different parts and this afternoon i saw one of the, one of the most amazing images i've seen in my life and it would have been great in the film is that there's um there's a little area behind where where i live in haggerston a kind of a, a precinct one of those severed precincts that were part of a development that that the first time in the, you know, i've lived there since 1968 the first time i've ever seen two orthodox hasidic jewish men in this strange shopping precinct and not only that they were on um santander bikes <laughs> and this is the first time i've seen two fully orthodox black you know big hats on a santander bike and they were they were not risking it in the road they were on the pavement and they were going so strangely slowly and wobbly that i was just mesmerized and i followed them down and they were kind of property scouting because they were looking at all these different new buildings and then suddenly they got themselves onto the canal and the canal is like a peloton it's like the tour de france so this was like two different life forms suddenly meeting and it was it was one of the most astonishing cameos that i've ever seen in my life but there you know this is it this is this is this sense of the, the richness of all of these communities mingling and overlapping each other and staring at, at, at buildings that were the, this is the sort of flip side of it the buildings that could have been anywhere i mean uh, there's a uh, a film by um, Andrea Zimmerman called Estate, which was about this estate. There was this estate and the communities that lived in the estate who didn't want to go. They, they, they relished the, the kind of uh, terminal life they were leading there. And now it's all kind of completely glitzy and new and it could be anywhere. It's, it's lost that sense of locality. So I think you want the, the richness of all kinds of people being there. You want also to sustain some sense of the local because i think the local is what makes london rich sorry i didn't really see it as a critique on that idea because i think like, i mean like you say london is a it always has been an international city for as ian says because of the presence of the river and um the topography of the city lends itself to that. i mean i always say that i'd like to visit england but i wouldn't like to live there you know, <laughs> my parents live in north devon it's great for about four days and then i like to come back um but i think as well this idea of the local is you know i'm, I'm i like to think i'm not one of those you know nimbyish people about those things because you can't look at the history of London without realizing a lot of what we look at today is product of sort of mid to late Victorian railway expansion, you know. So it's not as if you're delving into the distant, misty past, not as if you're in Trastevere in Rome or something like that, you know, and goes back to the Middle Ages. But it's like I say, it's this perversion that Bill explains very cogently in the film is this aberration that we've got like none of them was international in many forms we had goods coming here 
people coming here, capital obviously came as part of that. Now it's just capital. We just want the capital to go into what Ian brilliantly describes as these investment silos. And that is out of sync with the interests of the city. And look, it's funny, we now have a mayor who's gone, ah, yeah, this is not a great situation. I've been doing, I was commissioned to do some filming last few days of just locked off kind of uh, landscape shots of various parts of London to send to people in New York who are going to make this um, film for the United Nations, you know, and um, the UN sent me to Peckham yesterday. <laughs> Ironically, Peckham Rye, where we didn't film, it was one of the few places we didn't film. But I said, oh, well, I, I think you've got, you've got, you've got, if you want to know what's happening in London now, you have to film around Stratford and the Olympic Park. So I was just literally doing the thing, the opposite of what we do there, is just plonking a tripod down and filming a couple of minutes of what was there and there. And the thing that really strikes you, and this was on a Tuesday, I went there Tuesday mid-morning, midday actually, there's no people. When you go to those streets, you've got all those building sites. I went to the, I don't know if you've ever been to that new thing here east, have you been there? I've been there yeah. a few times in the last week. That's mental. It's like Milton Keynes at night. <laughs> You know, BT Sport are there. Loughborough University have somehow turned up. I don't know what they're doing in, in Hackneywick, because London's short of universities, and we definitely need one from Loughborough. <laughs> but there's no people. I mean, it's weird. And I thought, what? They just want me to send this footage unlabeled. They'll look at that footage, those blocked-off shots of Westfield from a distance and all the building there. They, that could, it could be Houston, it could be Dallas, it could be Dubai, it could be... You know, there's nothing to indicate that that's London at all in that in that landscape. Whereas actually Peckham Rye, if you know, let me say, you know, that there's there's an element to that which identifiably is sort of London, isn't it? But then Blake saw his angels. Yeah, Peckham Rye is where William Blake had his vision of angels in a tree, but and where Anthony Gormley made the angel of the north. But uh, the thing I wanted to just a short anecdote is that John talking about that place um, on the Lee looking looking like Milton Keynes at night. I mean, this is a Milton Keynes is a is a kind of intervention imposed from above, and it's it's does all everything is nice. There's lots of avenues, there's space of bicycles, and all of that. I did one of these events just like this with Chris Bettin, who was in the film in Milton Keynes. They'd set up a kind of new cinema, they had art that was going to underwrite the development. So we went all the way up to Milton Keynes and we went into this place which was state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art. There's two people there. So they said, well, are we going to do it? I said, no, yeah, we've come all this way, we do it. It's two people, it's two people. So, okay, it's two people. One of them um, said, "I'm well, I'm actually not going to stay for the film. I just wanted to uh, to catch you to see if you would be prepared to come to Leicester. I'm leaving now, I've got to get a train. There's no way out of Milton Keynes at night. So now there's one person left. So, okay, we did it. And now I, I come up to this guy at the end. So this, well, at least there's one person here who's interested in what we do. So I'm, I'm not interested in what you do at all. I've, I've got a project where I, I, I run up the, the hard shoulder of the M25 and the police sent me off here so I don't need somewhere to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> And so perfect. We've got a beautiful venue. We've got the complete madness of England. There's nobody there, and you get that same sense, you know, in this sort of a created territory of London. Because I did a again like this a curation 
over over on my 70th birthday. It was a lad, a guy called Paul Smith, said to me, "Would you like to pick 70 films?" I thought, well, "Great!" You know, I thought I'm going to get a kind of big pile of DVDs. So I did these 70 films, and it turned out I was having to go out every night to sort of introduce <laughs> films in weird parts of London. Well, well, one of them was right on the on the lee on this. Uh, there's a there's a burger, very good burger cafe that has a kind of cinema upstairs. I forget what it's called. Uh, anyway, I thought, well, great, this is good. Um, I want to show Antonioni's film Il Grido because it's set in the Po Valley and it's a it's a guy walking with his daughter through the kind of strange, mysterious, and industrialized landscape of the Po Valley where development is going on and he commits suicide at the end. Very beautiful, poetic film and perfect place to show it. I turn up again, there's nobody there, zero. Nobody, nobody, nobody in this is interested in this in any way. And yet we had another film which was kind of local interest in a couple of days later and it was packed. So um, culturally these spaces are very strange. They're very strange. You don't know what's happening. Um, you know what the history is where we are on the Mile End Road. You know, you know exactly where you are. In these new places I think it's going to going to take a long time for them to uh, sort of pick up the, that sort of patina of civilization. Uh, it, 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 we're, in, we're in a very imposed city at the moment. I think it's stretched. And I think um, John's work is very important in, in that he, he's constantly engaging. I mean, it can, the, the whole range can go from uh, Russell Brand to, um, to writer called Nick Papadimitriou, who's, who's a a haunter of the, the Western fringes and a kind of a one-man um, archivist and po poet of, of those landscapes. And, um, he, you know, he, he's come to a degree to prominence through things like John's films. And I think the finding of those people and those voices it makes, makes what John does very significant. I think we're going to wind it up there. Thanks everyone for coming out. Thanks once again to the Genesis and Frontlist Packlist for putting it together. And thank you to Ian and John for sharing and talking about your work. Thank you. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programmes you may enjoy.